podcast tonight we're on day six of the um, story building the novella and our topic is the decision tree and one of the more interesting parts of being a plotter is for me is like um the decision making on the on, on the front end and managing my ripples and whenever i introduce something into my plot that's has the potential to impact various characters, I ask myself some questions. And these questions are, who does it impact? Who could it impact? Can it impact my world? Who can it hurt? And you take an element, like, give me a crazy-ass element to explore. Crazy-ass element. Um... Like just ran anything at random. Mm-hmm. You see in black and white until you meet your soulmate. Yeah, to do what? You see in black and white until you meet your soulmate. Okay. I throw that out there as a crazy element because it's not a trope I like. So there you go. Okay, so you have to ask yourself: do 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 they get all the color at once, or do they get the color gradually? If they get the color all at once, do they have a little guide they can pick up at the store that says that has all the colors listed for them? Or have they been told all along, you know, apples are red. Well, they're not always red, are they? Sometimes they're green. Is it disorienting? What happens if they get all the color while they're driving? So, okay, the color. So, um, is it disorienting? Does it give them headaches? Um, what happens if you're a little kid when it happens? Do you have to touch your soulmate in order for it to happen? Can it only happen to you like after puberty or like when you're near the end of puberty? Or can it happen when you're a toddler? What happens if you meet your soulmate when you're a toddler? Do you have to be in close proximity to your soulmate color? Or is it like a permanent thing? You have to ask yourself all these questions and then figure out how these questions are, you know, get answered. Um, because you don't want to get blindsided by it later on in your narrative. I imagine that clothes in a, in that society would have like color matching um numbers in them. So one of the things when I've read um um, these this particular soulmate trope before is it's often not like a lot of the practical questions people have are not addressed in any meaningful way. So in a way, even though this is not a decision tree in terms of the story, um, we've talked about in the past that you want to keep you, you don't need to write with your reader in mind, but you need to write with readability in mind. And if the reader is super distracted, that is a readability issue. So if the reader is very distracted, wondering how practically this could work, like do people suddenly see and then realize that everybody's wearing horribly, everybody looks like Albus Dumbledore, you know? Um, uh, you know, because people's minds go off in that direction. Um, 
you know, I would actually think that if you got like color all at once, it'd be to give you a splitting headache, right? That the world would be too loud, too awful, too. Um, I can't imagine kind of, it's almost like having a sense turned on abruptly that would be very overwhelming and potentially very traumatic so a lot of these issues aren't um aren't really addressed with this particular trope the other side of it is is that we have a lot you know there are a lot of things in our world that are set up to be because most people see in color um not all but most um there are people who are colorblind mostly males i believe I mean, like, females are really rare. Um, but, uh, like, how do traffic signs work in a world where most people are colorblind most of their life, you know, until they meet their soulmate? How do, you know, how, I mean, like, what kind of, like, they get those little posts that are always painted bright yellow. What, what color are they in your world? What would stand out to somebody who's colorblind? Yeah, how do traffic signals work? And so there's a lot of practical issues that, and I get why they wouldn't be addressed. I want to see most of the soulmate stories I've read that are typically are often on the shorter side, which is interesting because I think soulmate has the potential to be quite a lengthy story. And yet I would say the vast majority of soulmate stories I've read are under 30 K. Um, and so the exploration of what the impact of some of this stuff is, especially where meeting your soulmate has a sensory effect it's really that there's not enough words in the story even to like practically explore, explain what life is like or how the world is different. Um, which in its way is fine. Cause to some degree, sometimes when you're picking up a trope, you're kind of hand waving away the details. Um, do this with Sentinel and guide all the time, but I think it's important to, to, to kind of try to, figure out is this going to be too jarring for the reader or are they just going to be stuck on how does this possibly work but um it honestly i would find it very frustrating to, to, to try to figure all those things out i wouldn't write it because some of those things would wrap me around the, the axle i thought the world would be very unsafe <laughs> Um, it is a, it is a, give me a second, y'all. I enjoy world building as much as the next person, but if I have a piece of world building that's going to make my OCD act up, I have to be careful with it. If it's going to like throw me into a spiral of ramifications and, you know, I, I get like, is, is, is somebody going to die if this happens or, you know, you know how the little kids deal with this. It'll just like, it'll, it'll, it's too much. And writing, it would be maddening, Shadow. You're absolutely right. It's just like, now I think see, seeing it like in The Hobbit would be interesting, but in a modern setting, I around like how, and then also job training. Like you train your whole life as a colorblind person to do this particular job. And you've got a board sitting in front of you with various, you know, lights or whatever. And then suddenly you, you meet your soulmate, you go back to work and you have to go, you have to get retraining. Because you don't know how to do your job anymore. Because nothing looks the same.
Yeah. I mean, we talked, we had, we had a podcast where we talked about the impracticality of a lot of soulmate tropes. Um, because a lot of them just, they don't, a lot of them don't stand up to, and these are widely used tropes, right? And they don't stand up to scrutiny, which could be why the stories tend to, you know, be on the shorter side. Um, it, it's just, it's because they, they're just, they make your brain go tilt a little bit. But so that's just something to, when it comes to, we could get really like wrapped up in like the impracticalities of um, soulmate tropes. Not my bad for bringing it up, but um, it is something to think about. Like when you're making a decision to use a trope like that is you do need to sit down with a decision tree and at least think about the implications. And maybe you do want to just write 10K and you really like the trope. And so you're going to author hand wave of convenience away all those things. And, and that's fine. But, it, you know, one of the things about the whole process of the decision tree is at least be aware of what you've hand waved away. One of the more tragic soulmate tropes I ever saw was um, that you saw that the words on your skin, it was one of those written words on the skin thing, were the last words your soulmate would ever say to you. And I just find that too tragic to read. I see that in the summary and I just don't even click on it. I mean, and I Thorin's last words on his wrist were that you're coming. I wouldn't read that. Not in a bet. And I, I haven't read it. Read it. I haven't read like it. A baby. <laughs> I, I wouldn't click. I wouldn't click on it because I just find that too has too much baked in angst for me. And you guys know how I feel about that kind of thing. Well, sometimes you just want to cry. I, sometimes I just want to cry. <laughs> I, have, I have others. I have stories I already know that are good for a good cry. So, um, <laughs> but anyway, so when you're sitting down to make a decision about your plot for every event thing you've got. And this is especially important if you are, I've talked about this in another podcast a long time ago. If you're someone who is trying to get to an event, like let's say you conceived your story around um, the climax, right? Which isn't uncommon. Somebody thinks of this big moment they want to occur and then they engineer the plot to make that moment occur. Um, this happened to me in the big fucking plot that we did is I'd already had an idea. I had this moment that I wanted to achieve and I had plotted something kind of backward plotted, right? I backward plotted stuff to make that moment happen. But when you work forward through all of those events and you analyze them going in a linear trajectory going forward, it's, they didn't make sense. It was like, yeah, if you're reverse engineering that event, sure, that's how you could get here. But going forward, you actually, a real decision tree, you wouldn't have made some of those decisions. And so when we were doing the big fucking plot, um, it kind of fell apart because it's like, well, they could have done, you know, when you got to this point, they could have done that. It's not impossible they would have made that decision, but it's the least practical decision for them to have made. <laughs> It actually does. It actually didn't make any sense. Right. That's why you have to do the work. That's why if you're somebody who is, and I've done, I've, I've done many a story where I reverse engineered the plot. It's like, this is what I want to happen. How do I get here? When you do that, you have to analyze those decision points and make sure that you actually is a reasonable decision, not just a possible decision, but a reasonable one. And if they're, if, if your character is going down the least likely path, you have to come up with a reason why all the other likely paths were, were unavailable to them. 
So, <laughs> well, Queenie, I know that bar is difficult <laughs> for 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 Eli. <laughs> One of the things that I've been working on with my with my Mars series that I want to. Do why would a private company go all the way to Mars for mining? Everything that is on Mars is on Earth. So what's out there? Why is it feasible? Why is it economically sound for them to build this colony and to have for you know all these mobile mining platforms on Mars? And I've been talking to my husband about it and um, we've been going off, you know, looking at rare minerals on Earth um, that uh, that are not great not that are they're not in great supply on earth but could in theory be in bigger supply on mars um so um and just going through that i've i've made some really good decisions about what's going to be mined how it's going to be moved um you know how how are they going to be moving it to earth um what the government on earth is like. I mean, just because just, just based on this, um, you know, labor laws, um, and, um, it's just been really interesting. Uh, and so, <clears throat> but yeah, but this is, this is set in the future of three or 400 years. So it's, it's not current political really isn't part of my my game plan when it comes to the series but just going through this um and going through the various uh um options to make this to, just to for, just to have it in my mind that this is economically feasible that this is something that they would do because um they need it and it's in short supply on earth um and it's easier to get to on mars um Especially, you know, iron is very plentiful on Earth. It is very, very, very plentiful on Mars and much easier to get to on Mars than it is on Earth. And that's today. What will it be like in 400 years? And so, you know, I'm looking at um, the construction um, that I'm doing for the, my world building. And this is, you know, just, just one of those things that when you're making a big plot, and you're doing something that's going to span several uh, you want to have a really good solid foundation um, for your world building. So I hit a decision tree snafu in the little story I was plotting. And actually it's enough of a snafu that I'm not sure it can be a novella. <laughs> I, I almost think the only way around the snafu is to make it a novel. Um, and I'll 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 go through it. What what I and the thing is this is sometimes when you get to these points where you think you've figured out the pro the, the problem and what the solution would have to be, um you it's a good time to get somebody else to like work it out with you to see if you've missed anything obvious. Okay. So when they bring Tony into the SGC and he it because of his investigative skills at that point it actually makes the most sense to keep Tony on earth under the protection of the SGC and investigating the trust. Mm -hmm. That makes more sense than putting him on the data list and shipping him to 
Atlantis. Now they are sending some other people who they want to be better protected because the way I had it is that some people, by the time they got Tony involved, um, some people had already who they'd put in protective custody had already been found. So they knew they had a leak about, so they need people to actually either be in the mountain or on Atlantis because they haven't had any success so far with keeping people safe in protective custody. So fast forward. Um, so it makes more sense actually to put Tony in at Cheyenne Mountain or in Area 51 and have him helping with the investigation. So how do I get him to Atlantis? This becomes a problem, right? Well, if there's something kind of fishy going on in SGC and potentially also on Atlantis, Jack might need to send somebody he trusts or he has confidence in to Atlantis to evaluate the situation and potentially deal with whoever is conspiring with the SGC, who, conspiring with the trust that's on Atlantis. Except that in, or, in order to keep my plot a novella length, I had taken that piece of intrigue out. Because I had thought somebody on Atlantis is conspiring with the trust, right? That was my thought. Somebody on Atlantis is involved too. Somebody in the SGC and somebody on Atlantis. But then I thought that's going to blow the novella word count. I can't have that much intrigue. I'm, it's going to wind up being a novel. Sounds like, sounds like you've got two novellas. <laughs> um, but like, so seriously, uh, it makes sense for him to route the problem on Atlantis first to clear that out so that Atlantis becomes a distinctly safe place for gene carriers and then have Tony come back to earth to deal with whatever is left behind. Um, because if they can figure out who the see on, on Atlantis that that spy has nowhere to go. So once Tony hones in on him, her, him, her, whoever, they have nowhere to go. They stop being a resource for the trust and become a resource for the SGC if they want to get out of this alive, etc. So you say, okay, you're going to help us. And if you don't, we're going to put you on a prison planet and you will never set foot on Earth again as long as you live. Actually, in at this instance, in my head, Ken, it would be, it would, it would be Elizabeth Weir. Yeah, well, Tell her doesn't have enough power. Yeah, the way <laughs> I originally plotted it is that Weir and uh, Landry are both effectively working for the trust. Although Weir doesn't actually know it's for the trust, she just knows that she's got to deal with Landry to keep her operating almost autonomously. So Tony goes out there with orders that Landry doesn't know anything about. They're kept secret because Tony's suspicious of Landry already. So he goes to Atlantis. Well, this was the original way I had plotted it. And I went, oh, too many words. He goes out there. <laughs> and with the orders he's got, once he figures out that it is Weir, he has her arrested and put in custody. And she isn't allowed to make any contact with Landry. But the way the orders are written, because the IOA requires a civilian head, because this just made me amused, Tony becomes the leader of the expedition temporarily. <laughs> because it has to be a civilian head and Rodney, there's no way they will, Rodney's going to do it. So Tony temporarily has to lead the expedition. And then when his father shows up, he's like, thank fuck. I'm throwing the keys of the city at you. <laughs> and puts Patrick in the big chair. <laughs> but then I was like, okay, 
Jillian. <laughs> I call myself by my full name in my head, Jillian. That is not 30K. No, that's not. That's like 90K. Yeah, it is. And that's like, put yourself in the corner. So then I'm like, okay, so now if I take that plot out, that intrigue plot out, which is the way I got Tony to Atlantis in the first place, how am I getting him to Atlantis? And then the thing is, and that's where sometimes, and this is what happens sometimes, sometimes your story isn't a suitable for the, your, for, for the parameters you have. So if your parameters are 30K is novella, if that's what you are need to write for some reason, like let's say you're confined to that word count, and this is the idea you've got, your idea isn't a novella idea. It's a novel. So either you simplify drastically, and simplifying actually is very difficult in this case, because it's very difficult to get Tony, idea. or you get a new idea. But it doesn't get him onto Atlantis. The issue is that the, the issue, the whole plot centers around Tony being on Atlantis. So him just being injured. Um, now, I could come up with a different way to get him to Atlantis, which he literally just goes out there as the agent afloat, which is a lot simpler, right? It doesn't have that whole trust intrigue. Um, Landry isn't really the, Landry isn't what's inflating the word count. Um, it's the whole angle of there being um, a trust resource, a trust trust person on Atlantis. Because that's what gets Tony there. The fact that there needs to be an investigation on Atlantis is what's bloating the word count. It doesn't matter that there's whether there's a co-conspirator back at the mountain or not. Um, the, the issue is, is that in the situation that is going on, the, the way I plotted it, it makes more sense for Tony to be on Earth as I mean, an investigative right. asset unless they need him to go to Atlantis for investigation. And there's a good cover for it. They're evacuating. They, they're planning to evacuate um, gene carriers to Atlantis, and he's part of the first wave. So he's got a cover. So he and Jack could have worked that out. The problem is all of that intrigue around the trust, because initially the intrigue around the trust was just going to be the trust is a threat. We're evacuating drink, I mean, gene carriers. But once you put more intrigue behind it than that, it starts blowing up the word count. So instead of the story, the point of the story being about Tony reuniting with his family and living on Atlantis, it now becomes about solving this bigger, bigger issue. So either I have to completely remove the impetus for action for Tony, which is that, you know, the trust is after him and find a different reason to get him to Atlantis, or this story doesn't fit the brief. It doesn't fit a novella. So as I plotted it, it doesn't fit. And that I, mean, I, ca I came to that. There are plenty of reasons we could put Tony on Atlantis, right. um, but not other gene carriers with him. Right. But because the point was to get his, his brothers and his father there too. Mm -hmm. And the only reason they would all get there is, is if, because they need to get the gene carriers on Atlantis. So I would have to put some uh, something else. Um, so my, And the reason I, how I found the flaw in this was in doing entry right i looked at okay this is what happens when tony and jack get together and they first meet and they start talking and tony's the type that's going to want to investigate right and jack would be foolish not to leverage tony's abilities at that point well at that point because if they can keep tony safe and he's an asset he's going to be actually working i have an idea okay hit me do you want me to share it with you here or in private? 
Well, we're working through it. Here, we're working through it in the as part of this exercise. So let's just okay. go through it. What if it isn't the trust? What if the Ori sends a plague to Earth, right? That's canon. What if the Ori realized that gene carriers um, specifically were very dangerous for them because of ancient technology and they sent a plague to Earth to target gene carriers? specifically um and probably a, a lot of them die i mean there um and there would be some deaths and they and once the sgc figured it out they would start evacuing um as many gene carriers to get their hands on which would mean jack too yeah jack too um which would mean that you're talking because the only gene carriers they would know about is those that would have DNA in file. So military, most, um, military law enforcement and potentially and families. The, the And the families of gene carriers. Yeah. Families of gene carriers and, and other, except for the random gene carrier that was in CODIS for some other reason, it would pretty much be um, law enforcement military. That they'd be able to save. Um, I don't actually think it, I think it's well. I mean, it's, it's depicted as being pretty rare to naturally occurring, right? Gene. So, but it would pretty much make, and um, now Rodney had a recessive gene, so it's very likely that Junie does too, and maybe her children do as well. Um, but they could be afraid it's going to mutate and hit recessive carriers as um, if, if it mutates. Um, but I mean. I don't think a quarter of Ireland would need to be supposed to be really, really rare. I don't remember the percentage, but really rare. And we know that there are um, gene carriers from all over the world. Random people would die. Random people would die. I mean, it would be it would be pretty bad. That's probably how they figure out that it's after gene carriers. Is be, that this plague is because of the civilians, the sheer number of, and it would be of inexplicable deaths that eventually. And when they look at the, maybe after a certain number of gene carriers that they have been, because I would imagine they flag all the gene carriers, right? And they would who, have to quarantine people. Um, yeah. Before they could go to Atlantis, there um, um, um there about to be a quarantine procedure. Um, they I don't know if they could turn the ships into quarantine procedure. Yeah, um, so they probably quarantine them. That's probably where once they figured it out, where they'd put Jack. And honestly, probably Daniel too, because I think his status is a little bit vague. Right. I don't but, think the or I would announce it. The SG they they have to know that the SGP the SGC has too many off world allies that they could just they might not think of this, them sending them to Atlantis but they have to realize that they could just if they know it's coming they just evac the gene carriers to another planet as many as they can but there, but but there would be a lot of casualties yeah a lot of people would die before it would get figured out yeah. So that's that. That's one way to accomplish it that, that that doesn't involve the trust. Yeah, because the trust thing does get really complicated. It doesn't leave Earth defenseless because most of their technology doesn't require the gene. Only the chair requires the gene. But the aura might not understand that, or might not know that. Might have might have not gotten the right information. 
Yeah. And it also could be really close in timeline to where they're about to activate that weapon that mm-hmm. where, where the war I were defeated anyway. And it was sort of a, they don't, if they don't. That's, if that's the case, SG-1 probably isn't on earth. So, so Daniel Jackson wouldn't be a problem um, or, you know, a, a concern because he would already be in the service of the RSI. Right. So it would be, um, Jack would be the big issue at the SGC. So he'd probably be aboard one of the ships once that all started happening. Yeah. Um, but I mean, the Ori wouldn't know that their defeat was about to happen anyway, and it wouldn't matter. They could, they could actually send that plague. And then literally in 10 minutes later there, they could be defeated. And, but the damage would be done. And the, the likelihood that they actually developed a cure is zero. It's a weapon. They wouldn't have a cure for it. But the Earth could find a cure. Um, it would just greatly, you know, it would kill a lot of people. But it would be the kind of catastrophic thing that would have them you know, just start pulling gene carriers left and right um, and quarantining them and then putting them on Atlantis. Yeah, and I would probably start the story, like, all of that stuff would have happened before I start the story. So I would start the story in that case where, you know, Marines come into the SGC and they've got orders cut for Tony to report to, you know, whatever, um, signed by the president. Tony's, like, mystified. But at that point, if the president signed orders for you to go somewhere, you don't really have a lot of choice. Um, I mean, it would actually be terrible if they put him in one of those suits. Because it seems to me that at, if they're targeting specific gene carriers, if, if they're going to get them like that, that they would probably make them put on some kind of contamination suit. Yeah, they if, probably if, would. If they're not already infected, they don't need to get infected in route. And for Tony, who's a plague victim, it would be psychologically... Usually if we do a write-in, it usually runs about... The last one we did it on the first time, it was... I want to say we ran for like 20 hours. Yeah, it was ridiculous. It was a long time. It was because you know people weren't there the whole time, but people came in and out. But anyway. Um. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, one of the things that maybe uh, you would probably want to bring Carson Beckett back in. He was, I think he's a clone at that point. There's a Carson clone. Have they found the Carson clone? I think so. Um, I'm not sure that that's true. Hmm. Because season nine of SGC was the same as was season two. Okay, so no, they still have original Carson. Um, okay, instead of Carson being crazy ass and trying to make Michael, he could st- he could be focused on. Um, well, the RI spans season nine and ten of SG one, right? Yeah. And apparently, so it's, I guess, towards the end of season 10. So that'd be towards the end of season three of SG, SGA-ish. I don't know. I have to double check. And when does Sunday take place? Hold on. I have a timeline. Hold on. Okay. So Sunday was in January 2007. And that was season three of Atlantis. When did we get Clone Carson? I thought that was... I thought that was season four. And we got Clone Carson. 
in episode The Kindred Part 2, which was in February of 2008, is when the air date was. Okay, so I have to work out the timeline a little bit. I mean, I'm looking at um, around timeline-wise for Tony's around the end of in season four. Um <sighs> Other than him being in that stupid undercover operation at that time, there's not a whole lot to me that was particularly noteworthy about towards the end of season four. I have to refresh my memory about what was going on in Angel of Death. I mean, you know, this is to kill Jean Benoit. She's a Jean Carrier. She dies. Oh, whoops. I'm <laughs> Problem solved. I'm such an asshole. <laughs> I probably put myself in this end bin right there. <laughs> well, no, the thing is that that actually is interesting because if she died like when she wasn't around Tony and he just gets word, you know, through his Tony DiNardo contact that she's died. Um well, it actually makes sense that she probably, if she's a gene carrier, that she probably has either contracted it, um, that she's been infected, um, or sh she's already dead. Because if she's a gene carrier, because she's a doctor, she works in an emergency hospital room and stuff like that. So she'd been exposed to victims already. She could be one of the first ones who gets it. And if she's in quarantine, Tony can't go see her. Um Maybe he talks to her on the phone or something. It might if and if it if she goes into quarantine before he slept with her, I can even I can avoid that whole Yeah. That whole nastiness. Yeah. And maybe if you get it like just I mean, just to the point where he's just met her. Um no, Jenny was setting up the op at the end of season three. This is a full year later. So, but he doesn't actually make contact with her for a little while into season four. And then it's not really clear how well their relationship is progressing, but they don't progress to sex until, as far as I recall, until Paula Cassidy dies. Oh, Paula Cassidy could have the gene too, and then she could get taken too. Yeah. Because the. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, I don't think I don't See, think I save one woman, kill another. Yeah, <laughs> the, the timeline is, um, and even if even if even if Jean and and Tony, even if she's not a gene cure, she could actually refuse to be around him because there have been so many mysterious deaths, and she, you know, works in a hospital and she doesn't want to be around him and risk him. Um, I don't know, it, but the thing is, um. Honestly, you know, de depending on how this disease is manifesting, um, I think if she, I think he'd be the one backing away because this man's already had the plague, and if there is an unexplained contact, people are getting sick and dying, especially if it's involving in the lungs. He's not going to want to be anywhere near a woman who spends her day in the, do in, the in a hospital. Yeah. So. Yeah, but even if he's met her and the office started, um, one of the one of the sticking points for Tony was progressing the relationship with her, and um, he basically was kind of backing off on it. I think, and but the implication, as I remember it in canon, was that Tony really was in love with her, 
And it was when Paula died that he just, his emotional vulnerability kind of led him, took him to John. Um, but I just wish they hadn't gone there because he had wanted to back off. Right. And he had gone to Shepard and said, you know, she's pushing for more and he wasn't comfortable with it. And Jenny was sort of like, well, don't you find her attractive? And it's like, Oh, that just got ugly. Real ugly. I mean, if you don't want to kill Jean Benoit, it doesn't really, you know, you just have Tony get confiscated. Um, and the op falls to pieces because he's gone and Shepard doesn't have a choice. Well, if Jean's a carrier, her dad's probably a carrier. He could be one of the early casualties. Mm, this could be. mysterious plague. And then what's the point in the op? And Tony could get pulled off the op long before Jean gets sick. Because with, with Rene Benoit dead, what point is there in any of it? Mm, that's great. So that's solved. You know, and Jean can live or die it, 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 you guys won't know because Tony, Tony will be on Atlantis getting banged uh, by Roman <laughs> yeah, exactly uh, realistically though if, if her dad's a gene carrier she's probably a gene carrier and because she's in a hospital she's probably going to get it and if there yeah. is no cure she's going to die but uh, I when I was getting my tea well because I got tea while I was gone um, when I was getting my tea I thought well if Carson Beckett can turn a, the gene on can he turn the gene off? And that's why I wanted to know where Beckett was and what the, what, what the Beckett situation was because the SGC could create a vaccine that actually turns the ATA gene off and that would make the contagion go dormant or whatever. Or maybe they find something in that science of Beckett's so they could they come up with a, eventually come up with a cure, quote unquote, yeah, for the whole thing. And I can still enact my shepherd out of um, power plot line, but just in a different way. Mm. Not shepherd. Weir, Weir. Um, Maybe Weir protests the people being evacuated to the city. And Jack O'Neill says, you know what? You don't actually get a fucking choice. And she's like, well, I'm in charge out here. And he's like, well, not anymore. Problem solved. You can come back to Earth. It isn't even dangerous for you. Yeah. Adios. And what? And the other thing could be, I had this, I, I had a vague idea of like Tony's first encounter with the, uh, because I th what if Shepard's been spinning the reports to be like that it doesn't need to be under military jurisdiction, that the Wraith are more of a distant threat, despite the fact that the Wraith nearly made it to Earth? And what if Tony has his first encounter with the Wraith, with a Wraith, and he pulls John aside and he goes, distant threat? <laughs> distant? That Wraith was in my face. That is fucked up. It almost up. ate my face. That is fucked up. Why aren't you in command of this expedition? Honestly, I think that if Jack O'Neill went out there, Jack O'Neill would be in charge. Oh, I totally agree. I, I, I just don't see a situation where Jack O'Neill ends up on the city where he lets Elizabeth Weir do that shit that she does. No. Well, and I think, and that could actually bring some stuff to light because Jack could go out there. He and Tony could both experience the Wraith and Jack and, could go in and go, you're out. <laughs> and he could, and Jack, I, that could be Jack having a frank conversation with John and go, I don't understand. 
Why didn't you push for, and that could be like a, just a minor thing. Cause it's my head canon actually that Landry has been sanitizing the reports from Atlantis. You can have Elizabeth blackmail John. Like he, to, if, if you want to stay on the city, you'll keep your mouth shut. If you don't want to go to jail for being gay, you'll keep your mouth shut. Ooh, ugly. Who's going to protect McKay if you're not here? It's a double threat. I will make sure you get put in Leavenworth. Elkin, he's dead. I think if she just threatened McKay's life, he might kill her. He just kill her. But if it's subtle and it starts with her blackmailing him about being gay, what's going to happen to you when the men under your command find out you're gay? And then it escalates. Yeah. Because I think that it could be a subtle thing that happened. Because I my it, I believe that John would have been honest when he went back to Earth to debrief about what the situation was like in Pegasus. So it, I have to do some kind of something to make it make sense. Landry has to be on. Maybe Landry is the one who threatened him with jail. And Elizabeth knows. Um, well, but I still think, regardless of which one of them actually did the threatening, I still think Landry has to be sanitizing what the reports mm -hmm. in Atlantis are in order for um, people not to be paying more attention to the fact that mm -hmm. this is under a civilian's leadership. Because she repeatedly got military assets um, killed with her delayed action. Yeah. Starting with Marshall Sumner. Yeah. So... So if John was honest in his reports, just honest about the threat level, and if Landry sanitized them or didn't submit them all or just whatever, and then um, when they have that moment, um, there could be something kind of like kind of a wink, wink, nudge, nudge thing going on between Landry and Weir where she pushes for John's promotion because she can keep him under control. And she makes that assurance. I can keep him under control. They don't have to sanitize. They don't have to hide the deaths. They just have to sanitize her inaction. Right. All it takes is the rewording of a sentence here or a rewording. And, you know, these are just acceptable losses. We're, we're fighting a war out here. We're fighting a species that thinks we're food. We acted as soon as we could. We responded with all due force. We did everything that we possibly could. Which literally says nothing at all. Right. I mean, that's the kind of shit that happens today. We're fighting the war we have, not the one we want. Remember that? Right. They can't change the wording to imply it's John's fault or John never gets promoted and he doesn't remain the ranking military officer. If the reports imply in any way that he screwed up. So if she wants to keep him under her thumb, she can't actually put the blame on him. But even early on, it, that's what I mean is that if, if at any point his leadership were to be, he wouldn't have gotten promoted if he was that much of a fuck up early on. There'd have been no way she could have pushed that promotion through. If the reports made it look like John had gotten his people killed through negligence or through poor leadership. 
Well, the fact of the matter is, is it doesn't matter how many people die on Atlantis. To Earth, the Wraith are a distant threat. Right. And even after they end up in orbit, practically, they never, the IOA never beefs up the military response on Atlantis. There aren't more people out there. They don't get... 302s. They don't get a permanent ship in orbit. They don't get a ship present in Pegasus. They don't beef up an intelligence operation. They don't even appear to put up any kind of early warning system for a wraith entering the solar system. So the wraith, even after they ended up in orbit around our fucking planet, they still remained a distant threat to earth and it never seemed to matter how many people died on Atlantis I think that the issue would become if those losses could have been prevented with different leadership and um, I think if it really if they came up that like a marine of Marshall Sumner's caliber could have been saved and he wasn't saved because of Elizabeth's inaction that becomes a big deal because that other colonel who came through had a real chip on his shoulder about what John did, but he didn't have a chip on his shoulder about what Elizabeth did. That read like somebody had told a different narrative back home. It's like he didn't get the full thing that John spent several, like more than an hour arguing with her about rescuing their own people. Right. When every minute counted, she was arguing against the actual rescuing of their own military leader. Because she didn't want Marshall Sumner to live. Because Marshall Sumner was a threat to her leadership. And that was clear from the moment one. So the, And the thing is, it wouldn't take a whole lot of words to even deal with that, right? Because um, this, is all, this is all past history. And it comes out when they've got Jack and Tony on the city. Which I would have to also... One of the things that occurs to me that I have to change my... Um, um, whole a little. There's a little tweak that has to happen with the Atlantis changing John's next of kin, because realistically, his all all of the shepherds are going to arrive with Tony and Jack. They're quarantining people, and once they're cleared quarantine, they're you know putting them off on the data list to go to Atlantis. Um, they're all going to be there. So, so, so the way the Atlantis, the way Atlantis would. So the way Atlantis would determine that Tony is the next of kin. So let's say John gets the email that says his next of kin has been changed. And Rodney says, oh, Atlantis probably did that automatically because your father and brothers are here. And then he opens it and he's like, no, it changed it to Denoso. And the reason why Atlantis would pick Tony is because he would ha immediately have some sort of official position in the city. So I would think that would be how the city would determine it. You know, first degree relative, the and the city would determine it would be the one of the highest rank on the city in terms of, of the leadership structure. Because at that point, Patrick and the and the other brothers would be logged as, as visitors, right? Whereas Tony would probably be immediately assigned as the effective law enforcement on the city. See, I would think, since Atlantis is not, and was not designed to be a military installation, that it was a city once full of family, that the city would assign... Patrick to be the next of kin for all of his children. 
Yeah, so it could come up that way. Yeah, Tony could be the one where they're trying to put in Tony saying that his next of kin, like maybe Tony has picked Jack because he's gotten to know Jack. And the system won't let that entry go in. They keep putting Patrick Shepard. Because it is in a military installation. So I think it might lean towards a parent. Part, I mean, but I think you, you could make an argument for either one. Well, but no, Tony's not military, but the the city would have had a governing structure. True, and true. The, but I also think it was a city, you know, designed around. I'm not sure what the city was designed around because it seemed like that there, you know, it was just everybody was pursuing ascension. So that doesn't seem very family but, friendly. Yeah, but event, but not in the beginning. I mean, the city was millions of years old by the time they started thinking about ascension. Can you imagine designing a city that would last millions of years? No. We just we just don't build, we just don't <laughs> we just don't build them like that anymore. <laughs> yeah. But on the other side of it, that's probably not actually true because they probably were pursuing ascension when they um, before they left um, the Ori galaxy because they because they all are basically the same. Just, it's just like the gold and the and the Tok'ra. Let's just reuse that idea. We'll have two sides of the same twist up fuck up, you know, um, um twisted fuck up coin. <laughs> the ancients and the Igra and the gold. They did they did like their um reusing their little duality thing. Um but yeah, I mean Atlantis was originally a city. I, I don't you know, but you know, I think that it could work either way. Yeah. Well, I mean, John could get the, also it could be John gets the notice from Atlantis right away and it lists all of his kin in, in it. Mm. And Tony's on the list. Next, yeah. of kin, next of kin is his father. And then his, he, it lists, you know, three brothers. And he's like, I only have two brothers. And all of the shepherds could be having that moment. They all get that email and they're all like, what? Do <laughs> you have a secret baby? Is this the secret baby one or is this no, the no, 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 no? But they would, I think they would immediately assume secret baby, right? Mm. Their assumption would be, secret. I mean, I would go to secret baby first, wouldn't you? Especially if well, they because think... they assume that their um, Matt's twin is dead, right? Right, <laughs> replacement, yes. Patrick Shepard, the man whore ears, go to the corner as, yeah, I mean, accurate, but. Well, I doubled down on your corner time. So there. As is a mod, she doesn't get put in the sin bin. Oh, no, she's there. <laughs> I rearranged the order of the roles on the server just so I could put her there. <laughs> Wait, is that me? I can go in the sin bin? Oh, because I can't, I can't make a role higher than admin. Oh, okay. Do you listen to her? Does it mean I can go? No. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, she runs the sin bin. Um, she is. She's the sinner in chief. Um, but so when it comes to the decision tree, um, as you can see, I'm throwing my plot out there because there were decision tree issues. There were ripples that needed to be accounted for. And a plot that needed to be changed because as it stood with that intrigue element, the intrigue around the plot, the trust with, in order to fix that, that ripple, it puts the intrigue with the trust instead of being, a, a, instead of just being the, you know, the inciting incident that got him to Atlantis, it actually overtook the plot, 
with it becoming the primary plot and the family issues becoming a subplot. And there was really no other way to do that that wasn't disingenuous with that plot line. And this is ripple management. This is what you do, right? So if I don't want to write 90K or 100K or 110K, and I know nobody would mind if I wrote 110K. That's not even the issue. The issue, right, the issue is if I'm trying to write a novella, which is this exercise, that plot as it stood would have failed. I do think I could tell this storyline that we've just been discussing, this revamp storyline, not in 30K probably, but I could tell it in 40 so to me, it's still um, within the novella range. I aim for 30, knowing that, you know, sometimes with a novella for me, I hit 40. So this is why the decision tree, the ripple management is important. Because if you are trying to write a 30K story and you haven't looked at these kinds of things, you then course correct once you start writing and then you're no longer writing a novella which is what i would have done right that's why i had a course corrected and gone well i just have to put the whole trust issue more front and center and then that takes a lot of words to deal with um and i will say of everything we've done so far in the workshop i do think ripple management this is the piece that i don't have a lot of advice for pantsers on because everything else I could tell, like, you, you know, this is how you could strip down and do minimal plot points, or this is how you could do, you know, you could, because I think a pantser can do central idea and theme. They can do GMC and character bios. They can do some level of events for their story, even if they're not doing a full plot. Ripple management and the decision tree gets to be a little bit more complicated to do that in advance if you're not a plotter. If you don't know what your plot points are, if you don't know what your plot events are, how do you manage the ripples? I don't, I don't have an answer for that. I think that that's why a lot of you, you see a lot of works in progress from Pantsers fall apart, especially if they, if, if they're posting as they write instead of keeping it private until they're done, so they don't have the ability to do their ripple management in their second draft. Which is where I think that when it comes to Panzers, you have to do your ripple management in your second draft. You have to... Boo just totally threw me off. I, <laughs> I just I can't even. Hey, you do you, Boo. That <laughs> <sighs> um, I think when it comes to being a Panzer, that you kind of thing in your um in your second draft i don't know where else she would address it because otherwise um you're going to um go off the rails repeatedly during your rough draft process and maybe they do i don't know as i've been reliably told that i've never pants the damn thing in my life <laughs> even though i thought i had <laughs> yeah so it is this is the hardest part i think about being a pantser is managing ripples it is the easy, certainly the best advice is what Kira just said, is don't post a work of rest. But that isn't actually even good advice. That isn't help. I should say that isn't helpful advice if you're writing original work. So writing original work, you're not posting a work in progress. And what do you do then if you're a pantser and you are supposed to be submitting under 30K for a specific, specific submission criteria and your story falls apart and the only way to fix it is to write 110k what do you do well honestly you start a different story because 
because by the time you go back, let's say you've written 20K and you've realized your problem, going back and trying to, to, to fix that idea, like let's say I was writing this idea for an original submission, ignore the fact that it's fan fiction. And I got 20K in before I realized my problem. It, it would take more time to try to fix that than to just, it, I just set it aside, leave it for the novel I'm going to write someday. It would take less time to go back and write something else. So the only advice, if you're writing fan fiction, don't post as a work in progress until you know you've got all of these, the ripples, the plot holes, all these things worked out. If it's for original work, it give yourself plenty of time. You know, you can't, you can't, It'd be rough, man. It'd be rough if you're a month before your deadline and you just start and you trip headlong into a big consequence that you hadn't accounted for. Well, you know, and the fact about it is, is that sometimes, you know, no matter whether you're a pantser or a plotter and, and whether you've zero drafted or not, whether you've outlined or not, whether you've seen blocked or not, you get 20, 30K into your story and you had a consequence you didn't prepare for. I don't believe anybody is immune to this. And so what do you do? I think a lot of people just stop writing. Slap indefinite hiatus on their work in progress on AO3 and go write something new and do the same damn thing over again and over again Sometimes and over again. 49 times they do that in a row. Um, <laughs> not that I'm bitter or anything. Um, yeah, I'm still holding a grudge from 10 years ago. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I go check to look and look and see how many works in progress she has now, and has she finished anything? Just as an idle curiosity, and the answer <laughs> is a lot. And no, no. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't use an actual decision tree. No, because someone asked if anybody if I if I use an actual decision tree. I don't. Jilly, do you? No, it's too. Um, a decision tree for me is a little too if then if this you know if this do this then do that it's a little too uh confining you know you know what i mean you need more room yeah i'm more of a cares clouds you know are a little bit closer to way where what my process is like when i'm trying to figure out which of these things could happen, which is the most likely based upon the character profile, the GMC, the external events in the story, which one of these is most likely? If I don't want the most likely thing, how do I rule it out as an option? I mean, so it's, it's a little bit more organic than just a straight decision tree. But most often you have to figure out how to mitigate the consequences. And that can be, you know, a nightmare. Like, how do I work myself out of this hole so I don't have to start over again? And if you've got a lot of room to work, then then you're golden. You can figure it out. You can you can move things around. You can you can smooth out those rough edges. But if you're it, but if you're but if you're confined to thirty k and you've hit a fifty k um, problem in the face, then what do you do? And the hard limit is really about challenge environment where you got like you, you got to turn in a novella or where you're doing original fiction and you've got a specific range on your word count that you have to hit if you're doing a submission and they say this is a submission length and you go under or above that dude no in don't. some instances for publishers that's an automatic rejection 
If they ask you for 30K and you give them 25, no. And you give them 32, no. They probably won't even read your story. They don't actually give a fuck what you have to give them. They, they don't care if it's brilliant. You haven't followed the instructions. You haven't given them what they asked for. They're not even going to read it. What are you going to be like to work with if you can't even follow the instructions about word count submission? And honestly, it can be even with a publisher. It can even be things like if they tell you to send them a cover letter and you send them a cover email, just an email. Or if they tell you to put it in an email and you send them an attached Word document with your cover letter, I mean, it shows really poor reading skills and poor comprehension or that you're just such a prima donna that you are going to do it your own way regardless of what they ask for. In which case, why would they want to work with you in any of those cases? They're not going to want to work with a prima donna. They're not going to work with somebody who can't read and simple instructions or somebody who has poor comprehension skills. So I like thinking to themselves, how in the hell is this person going to be an edit to, in, in editing if they can't follow simple instructions. But so those are, there are situations where you've got to hit a target. And if you can't do it because, you know, you have too much plot or because you have a giant, a giant, a giant, it's not really a plot hole. It's a giant ripple that takes, and sometimes working your way around a ripple to make your story still happen the way you want it to happen, as I've just illustrated, takes an additional 60,000 words. <laughs> I'm just saying. I mean, that's 200% bigger. Or you have to stop and replot. Or stop and Sometimes replot. Get. I mean, right. you have to start, just, you have to strip down to your idea and start over again. And because I was working through the decision, the, the decisions around each plot point, for tonight, you know, I did, I and mean, actually I'd run into this particular problem. I noticed it a couple days ago, but when I was prepping for tonight, I was thinking through the issues of each of the, particularly the early plot points. And I was thinking, oh boy, this is even, it's even bigger than I thought. And then I started thinking, this is just going to blow up. And if I take this intrigue out, it becomes, I've got to, then I've got to, you know, it, then I have no impetus to get in there. Um, with it in, my theme is off, you know, so there was just all of this stuff. And so I kept pushing at it because, you know, because it's this exercise, right? And it helps illustratively to have fucked up. <laughs> um, but in this case, I can either do the story as I plotted it, although I really like the idea of the plague thing, you know, I have... Actually, honestly, because I guess hundreds of dead by a plague is less offensive than the trust honestly running around and just randomly killing a bunch of people. Yeah. Mm. So the plague. Either way, you're going to have a body count, but um, at least it isn't vicious murder. Yeah. Well, it's vicious murder, but it's not vicious murder in. Like with know, a gun. Yeah, with a gun by people, you know, from your own planet. So. Um, I mean, they won't know they're murdered. <laughs> does, they just, does, does that matter? Probably to their loved ones, yeah. You know, it does matter. Um, so, if you are a pantser, I'm gonna, so I'm gonna give this one piece of a piece of advice. If you're a pantser who posts works in progress, okay. If you trip into a problem like this and you've already posted, change it. Just change it. It is your shit. And yes, you need to, you need to, 
gird up your loins. I don't know. Do something to prepare for the fact that people are going to get pissed. They're going to say shitty things to you. But it, this is one of the consequences of putting stuff up as you go. Okay. Um, but it's still your stuff. It's yours. And if you need to go back and change a chapter or two or three, just do it. Just do it. If you like the story enough to keep working on it, if you like the story enough to keep working on it, um, go ahead and change it and fix it. You don't, it's just because you posted it online does not mean it's set in stone. Po, you know, it being published and printed in a book, that's set in stone or paper. I think that um, I'm I'm firmly in the house of um, it's your shit and you can do what you want with it. Yeah. Even if that re means you you rewrite the entire chapter one and there's like one sentence out of the original chapter that ends up staying in it, it that's your shit. What are they gonna do? Stop reading it. Complain. Okay. Fine. Great. Appreciate you. <laughs> I actually told somebody to stop reading my work. Because <laughs> she said, she wrote me an email and said that she hated that I, um, that I felt like I could edit anything on my site that I wanted to. She must have listened to my podcast. If you're still listening, I still don't care. Um, and I said, well, just stop reading it. And she wrote back and told me that wasn't fair. I said, well, life isn't fair, honey. Where'd you get that idea? Well, she's in that camp that uh, thinks that because you put something on the internet that they suddenly have some rights to it. Well, look, even professional works get changed. That's why there's such a thing as a second edition. Mm -hmm. Or an abridged version. Or a third. Yeah. Or a fourth. Or, you know, the King James version. Whichever, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with you, Sam, Nick. If life was fair, I would totally want to be on the fair that involves carbs. I don't I don't <laughs> care. I don't care about this writerly fairness and stuff. I want carbs. I mean, what well, I, I I wasn't actually digging at religion at that particular moment when I said King James, but King James is a version of the Bible, and there are many of them. There's not just one. You and know, argue, so even argue, the Bible is subject to editing. <laughs> And arguably the King James is one of the least accurate translations, but whatever. Um Yeah, King, yeah, the the well the well the King James version of the Holy Bible was edited for King James. Hmm. It was edited to make him happy. Well, the whole Bible was done by committee. Right. I mean there were books that were cut out entirely that were in the original kind of. Um, yeah. So, you know, it, it, the the point being is that there is no book in print today that's something, not even the Bible. So that's the point I was making. I wasn't actually, you know, doing the atheist dig at religion, you know. She'd do that a different way. <laughs> I would. I was being totally serious. And also, like someone mentioned someone mentioned a, a mistake, um, like a typo in one of my works once. And I said, Well, you know, nothing is perfect. I said, even the Bible has typos. I'm sort of horrified that that's where you went with that. Nothing is perfect, even the Bible, because that almost implies that the Bible is close to perfect. I feel like <laughs> I need to. You really, I need to rename admin to Sinbin. What well, What I would say about the Bible is that it is an, an excellent collection of allegories. 
It's a <laughs> Not all of which are um, have lessons in them that anybody should take with them and and use. The original sin. <laughs> what did you do? Oh, okay. <laughs> but most of the stories in the Holy Bible can also be found in other um in other legends and like you know Jesus Christ wasn't the first virgin birth myth there are plenty of those across multiple cultures across the planet so it's a very popular myth though so absolutely so was the flood um but I remember when I read the Bible in college I actually found it pretty entertaining <laughs> Right, Shadow? It's not too much to ask. <laughs> no, that's the point. They everything. What are you over there doing, Jillian? Are you up to something evil? No, why would I be up to something evil? That did you do you guys see the defensiveness and hear the defensiveness in her voice? No. <laughs> Actually the funny thing is I is perhaps not exactly ironically. Um, but no, I was uh, updating the Evil Author Day page with the space for the new stuff. I didn't put anything. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't put any content in it. I was just, you know, making space for the stuff that's coming tomorrow. Um, so when you said, "What are you, were you doing something evil?" It's just ironic a little bit that I was on the Evil Author Day page. <laughs> So you were, in fact, up to something evil. Yes. <laughs> but no. <laughs> but, you know, ripple management. Um, I Sometimes, you know, even with a zero draft, uh, for me, more often than not, I, I have plot events come back to characterization. Like, I plan things that by the time I get to them, it often some I mean I encounter this a lot in my zero draft like oh well you know my character wouldn't actually do that now I mean they might have done that like 25 plot points ago but now they won't do that I'm about to exit out <laughs> oh yeah that's not a good idea <laughs> oh that oh. might even be that might even be treason can um, I move that can I move that to the front of the book I mean no no I can't well fuck fuck me Darn, that's a really good moment, but it just doesn't actually make a lot of sense. <laughs> right, because, and that's where it hits me normally, is um in the characterization. Um, is that I will put something in that I find, you know, interesting, entertaining, or amusing, and then by the time I get to it, it no longer works for my characterization for that to happen. Because I am much more interested always in preserving the integrity of my characterization than I am um, preserving my intended plot. Yes, characterization is paramount. Um, you got to keep your character in character. And sometimes, well, I mean, unless you're writing, I was just, unless you're writing something, and I'm not picking on crack writers here, right? But the only time I ever see completely out of character stuff that remotely makes any kind of sense is when it's just obvious crack. crack. Yeah. Right? Like Tony not having somebody arrested who sent him a box of fingers. Is absurd from a characterization perspective. 
<laughs> it only makes sense in crack, okay? Because <laughs> it Tom- only really makes sense when Deadpool does it. <laughs> it does, which it didn't even make sense when Deadpool did it. <laughs> um, he would do that. It's good characterization for Deadpool. It's not great characterization for Tony. So it says something about pulling out a sex scene. I would be honest, if, if I plot a sex scene, which I don't often do, they just kind of appear, you know, like a unicorn in in, in my pick. But like if a- I plot one, I usually write one. Wait. Um I don't plot the sex scene, but I like if I'm if I'm plotting a um like a Sentinel Guide story, there's a note bonding sex here. I, I wouldn't call that plotting a <laughs> sex scene, but it is in my no. event plot because usually if I write a Sentinel Guide story, there's going to be bonding sex. So, right? But I can't right? imagine well, that's actually the, that's not the best part of a bond, <laughs> right? But I can't imagine <laughs> writing plotting a sex scene. No, I mean, but like if I stick it in my plot, sex happens here. It usually happens here. The only time I would I would pull sex out is if it impacted pace. Yeah, because um, yeah. for me, most of the time, the sex I put into my work is about characterization. It's about intimacy and romance and the building of a relationship, and um, so on. So yeah, so sex so sex gets pulled out if okay actually for two reasons pace and i don't actually literally want to write it (laughs) yeah sometimes i'm just not in the mood y'all and if a story is getting held up entirely on i'm not in the mood to write sex right now sometimes it just doesn't happen (laughs) just get the sex or sometimes if i think the story really needs the sex then it sits on my computer and i'm in the mood um so let's see does anybody have any questions about the um the decision tree, ripple management. I mean, it's a Friday night. It's 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 almost Evil Author Day. Valentine's Day, thank fuck, is almost over. The best part of Valentine's Day, honestly, is... Cause I, I've told you guys this. I think it's a bullshit holiday. The best part about it is the heart-shaped Reese's. So, um, the, the discount chocolate we're going to get tomorrow? <laughs> that's that's I, I figured that was for Evil Author Day. <laughs> Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm on board that. I'm on board that. I don't actually celebrate Valentine's Day. I haven't since I was in my early 20s. A couple years ago, one of my husband's coworkers convinced him that I didn't mean it. And I really didn't, that, that I was, uh, I was actually really just hiding my, I mean, anything for Valentine's Day. And so he got me some chocolate covered strawberries. And this is the funniest story about this because he got me some chocolate covered strawberries and they came in the mail and you know, on the little ice pack and everything, you know, how you get them in the mail. Well, I didn't even notice the box was addressed to me. So when the package came, I just brought it in the house and put it on the freezer in the kitchen and like went about my day. So when he comes home, he's like, why didn't you open your package? I said, I didn't know it was for me. And he says, well, your Valentine's Day present. I said, you know, I don't celebrate Valentine's Day, but I, but I did enjoy the, the chocolate covered strawberries. They were great. <laughs> it's just, and then he went back to work and said, dude, she didn't even open the box while I got home. She didn't know what it was. It didn't even cross her mind that I'd given her a present for Valentine's Day. She literally doesn't give a shit. <laughs> I mean, honestly, for me, that'd be, that could have led to moldy strawberries because I sometimes don't open packets for days. I'm like, <laughs> 
I'll deal with that eventually. But I wasn't expecting anything. I didn't notice my name was on it. I was just like, okay, here, I'll stick it in the kitchen. Because it was kind of cold on bottom. And I, I was like, I don't know. I, but I probably should. Obviously, it was probably food. It just didn't even occur to me. I just went about my business. <laughs> I love Reese eggs, Reese hearts, Reese trees, Reese pumpkins. They're much better than the original Reese cup. Yeah, the the ratio of chocolate to peanut butter is perfect in those specially shaped ones. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. uh, I really dig Doug the hearts this year. The eggs are great too, but I just I don't like it when they get when they when they jump a holiday. Even though I don't, even though I think Valentine's is a bullshit holiday, it is a legitimate Reese's holiday. So, <laughs> so you expect to get egg hearts? I get I, it. So the fact that I was at Safeway yesterday and they had the eggs, I was like, what the fuck is this shit? This is sort of like you know. It's not even Halloween yet, and they've already got, you know, Christmas shit. They already got the trees out. I'm like, no. No. Y'all go get in the sin bin, because that's just not happening. There's a question, but I'm going to need more information. See, when you realize your characterization invalidates your idea. Well, that alone... I change characters. So if your idea doesn't fit your character, you have two choices. You either get a new idea or you get a new character. If you're really enamored with the idea, you move the idea to a different character. Which is a net which is an excellent reason to be polyphandomous. <laughs> well, um now the rest of your question doesn't make sense to me. So I don't know the fandom, but the rest of the questions is I found out my character re in my character research that saving the kid from the assassination would be treason. Um, there aren't a lot of good reasons to commit treason, but perhaps saving a child from being murdered is a good it one. Is. It could speak to characterization in a different way. Not, usually you wouldn't want to have your character accidentally committing treason, but then you might characterize them to deliberately commit treason because what's happening is really wrong. But I don't know the fandom, so I don't know the context. <gasps> Boo. I, I took care of it. Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> I got it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what's worse. <laughs> that you bragged about Reese's? Or that you bragged about having peeps? You have peeps. <laughs> Who the fuck eats peeps? Peeps. <laughs> Can I don't you, understand how saving the kid from being assassinated is, is is treason. We wait for that explanation. I'm just head tilting at Ellie over here because those are words I've never seen together and never expected to. His father is the leader of a militaristic country. So is his father the one trying to kill him? Oh. Oh. And does he know the father is the one that tried to kill him? Wow. Well, save the kid. Consequences be damned. <laughs> save the kid. <laughs> Fuck everybody up. Save the kid. <laughs> save the kid. Kill the uncle. Run like <laughs> hell. Find a saner place to live. <laughs> Problem solved. I mean, actually, I mean, you. I, I mean, I don't know what you're trying to do with the story. Um, but it sounds like that in terms of the characterization, 
you could make the treason very deliberate. Like I'm not going to, he could draw a line in the sand. You know, there's a line between loyalty and duty and that's just wrong. Save the kid, kill everybody who wanted to kill the kid. Put the kid in his dad's place. There you go. Kill the dad. Hey, y'all. Promote the kid. <laughs> kill the council. Definitely kill the uncle twice. And then put the kid in charge. Oh, it's canon that the kid takes over for the dad. I mean, honestly, even if he's six, he'd still be better than the other guy. Your character can be his advisor until he's old enough to rule by himself. No, Queenie. <laughs> I already put her. In, I already. <laughs> I already put her in the bin, Dark. Queenie, no. <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, I don't. I don't know anything about Naruto. I don't know if I pronounced. I don't even know if I pronounced it right. Um, but but I kill do everybody. Know, but I. <laughs> The, with the with that kind of craziness, um, you could make a deliberate choice for um, treason, and then try to make some try to bring. People are saying that there's no sanity in Naruto, and if that's the case, you could try to bring some sanity. You know, that could be part of your fix it. Is you know but first you need to kill all those assholes who who wanted to kill a kid because that's ridiculous. And if there's nobody left after you kill all the assholes, then imp import some saner people. I don't know, but not Eli David because no. I, and I'm not trying to to trivialize your question, but legitimately, that's the way I would approach that. Is instead of it being like accidental treason, is I would in from from a characterization perspective, like you accidentally had your character commit treason, is I would have the character go, "Whoa, I love I love my king or whatever my leader. I'm loyal to my country, or I love my country. I'm loyal to my leader, but this is wrong." And sometimes people do things that are criminal for absolutely the right reason. But you well, know. <laughs> That escalated quickly, Queenie. <laughs> I can't even with y'all. But yeah, I mean, I would go for intentional treason as well. I mean, I think that having um, a character draw the line is a lot more attractive and it's a place of strength than to have them stumble over somebody else's line. Because sometimes you just got to pick up a sword and say no. Yeah. Well, I had to scroll back up to find out what line it was that had Queenie losing her cool. Um, I actually I have to agree, Zathara, that that Eli and Sane are. I guess now we all have to shut our whore mouths because I agree with you too. <laughs> Those are words that just. <laughs> I mean, we put her in the sin bin, but she's already in the sin bin. She only gets worse in the sin bin. Mm -hmm. It's just it's just getting worse and worse in here. Um, I mean, there, there's something to be said for writing an over-the-top, in-your-face, draw-the-line, fuck-everybody-up story. 
I mean, I I honestly have never had a better time in my life than I did when I was riding Darkly Loyal during Rough Trade. <laughs> I got to kill everybody. I had I had to have an Excel spreadsheet. I highly recommend it. No, really, I had to have an Excel spreadsheet. I had to. I killed 70 people. And I accidentally killed one person three times because I forgot that I killed them. So I had to um well, some I people had to make a spreadsheet. Some people just need extra killing. Well, some people did get killed twice because they got killed in the future, then they got killed in the past. But then I forgot that I killed Lucius Malfoy and killed him again. Some as I said, some people need extra killing. So, just for continuity's sake, I needed an Excel spreadsheet, yes. And the Excel spreadsheet lists, like, um, their name, their affiliation, um, who killed them, and how they were killed. And in which chapter they were killed. Because that became important as well. <laughs> I mean, that's how, you know, Winky won. By, by one. She won by one death. So, y'all, this is your last call for questions because we're about to fall into the cracked volcano. And uh, we don't need to actually record <laughs> our descent into the cracked volcano. So, someone fetch me an orange soda and let me know if you got any more questions. <laughs> <laughs> Queenie, if you had actually quoted, you know, what's that line? You come to me on the day of my daughter's wedding. <laughs> <laughs> And anybody who doesn't get that needs to take their infant ass to bed, Margaret. It's too late. You're up too late. Which <laughs> look at her. Look at that little little baby shooting me the bird. You totally deserve that. Cute. You totally deserve that. But, I, did. I did. You know, honestly, someone Margaret's age. Even if she hadn't seen The Godfather, might have seen it from Zootopia. Yeah, I was just thinking Zootopia when that little mole got there going, You come to me. And the thing is that from that scene, the, my favorite part about that scene with Mr. Big is the skunk butt rug. <laughs> There's nothing better than I buried my grandmama in that skunk butt rug. <laughs> I have never seen Zootopia. I need to watch it. It was on Netflix Dude. for a while. Dude, it is it is great. It is totally worth it. Um, it it's very funny. Jason Bateman is is great. It, it's awesome. You got to see it. And that scene with with the with the Godfather knockoff, um, and the skunk butt rug is my favorite part of the movie. <laughs> and he used the line exactly. You come to me on the day of my daughter's wedding. <laughs> I used the um, one from Scarface on my husband the day. Am I funny to you? I'm funny to you. We use uh, we use you can't handle the truth a lot around here. <laughs> you can't handle the truth. The truth. Truth. You want the truth? Great scene. Probably the only movie I've ever watched that I actually enjoyed Tom Cruise's performance. Um. Yeah, there's actually a bunch. I mean, I don't really enjoy, I usually don't enjoy Jack Nicholson all that much either. And so I really enjoyed the movie. So that says a lot about the movie that you basically it pivots on two people I don't care, care for. So, right. 
Are there no more questions? They... I'm pretty sure that's an oxymoron. The porn version of Goblet of Thrones, I mean, of, of Game of Thrones, Goblet of Thrones, the porn version of Game of Thrones. I mean, isn't it like literally porn already? Soft. I'm not even sure it's all that soft porn. It's. I mean. Well, I guess it's not porn because of all the killing in between the porn moments. You know. It's sort of like the difference between erotica and erotic romance, right? <laughs> the, plot, <laughs> the plot in between the sex. So, you know, uh-huh. it's not porn because there's there's man porn. <laughs> man porn. Man porn. Oh, that's, oh you're that saying is it's definitely man- an oxymoron. <laughs> so you're saying it's porn designed for men, except that it's already, all, most porn is already designed for men. <laughs> Okay, and on that note, I hope that you guys enjoyed this podcast and that it was extremely helpful. And I don't know how much of it's going to be left in before after I edit. Um, second night. Oh, and also, it's officially Evil Author Day, as far as I'm concerned. It's been I mean, Evil Author Day for five minutes. Does that mean you're going to go get busy? <laughs> <sighs> That's a personal question to be asking me, Jillian. <laughs> wow! Wow! All up in my literal business. Well, she said it's officially Evil Author Day for me as far as I'm concerned. But why would it matter unless you were getting ready to do something? <laughs> did she ask me? Are you something? No, you did not. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, y'all have a fantastic um, Friday night and um, we shall see you tomorrow for the last day of our, um, our little workshop. So I hope that you're enjoying it and that you're learning stuff and um, that you'll see us there. Say good night, Julie. Good night, everyone.